Well, it's great to have you with us in worship this Sunday. And if you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. My name's David. I am the pastor. If this server seems a little crowded, a little tight to you, it's because you're filling it up. Uh, we have a 12-15 service that doesn't have near this many people. You could have a whole row to yourself if you want that. So just to let you know, if you need a little bit more room, we have that. We're coming today to finish up a series we started the 1st of March called The Cross of Christ. And uh, this is a series that we began. This is our eighth week. And in every week, the one thing that we try to get through, the kind of the theme of this series is simply this, that for the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. You cannot separate the cross from Christianity. You simply cannot separate the cross from Christianity. And what we have seen during this series, we have seen uh, the centrality of the cross. We have seen the reason for the cross. We have seen the heart of the cross. We have seen the achievement of the cross. We have seen the message of the cross. We have seen the preaching of the cross. Last week, we saw the life of the cross. I think that's seven. And today, we come to the eighth. We come to the church of the cross. And we come to a passage, if you've grown up in church, it's fairly familiar to you, probably. Even if you haven't grown up in church, you should probably have heard of this passage. It's called The Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Um, and here's what it says. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven And on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. If it is true that the cross is central to our salvation, that that we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, that Paul said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. If that is true, Then we come now to the church of the cross. This is the thing we should walk out of here with for this series is simply this. We must do everything we can to bring the cross of Christ and all that it means to the people we know, love, and encounter. We must do everything we can to bring the cross, to bring Jesus, to bring the gospel to everybody that we know. Because they all, just like us, need Jesus. They all need the cross. I want to talk to you for a few moments now then about the symbol of Christianity. It's the cross. And we, we, we recognize that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably know that the cross is a symbol of faith. Many of you wear crosses at my house. My have a wife has a wall full of all these different crosses. We live in the city of the crosses. There's a cross right outside the building. And the cross is a symbol of Christian faith. It hadn't always been that way though. It wasn't always a symbol of the Christian faith. I mean, for a long time, the cross was a symbol of suffering and pain. It was a symbol, really, of persecution, because that's what they used the cross for, to persecute, uh, to, to kill. And it's an amazing thing when you really think about it, how, how it came to be. A few years ago, Debbie and I were at North Point Community Church in Atlanta. Andy Stanley was, was the pastor there. He was preaching, and he was sharing about a thing, something about a few years before, that earlier, that he and his wife had been in Rome taking a little tour there, and they had gone to the Colosseum, and he said he walked into the Colosseum, and the thing that hit him, the thing that struck him, is that you walk into the entrance of the Colosseum, there stands a cross. There's a cross at the entrance to the Colosseum. You sit right there. I mean, you can go on the internet, there's hundreds of pictures of that cross. 
I was reading uh, not too long ago that the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum, came about in the 70s AD as a way for the Romans. You know, they built it so they could have the games, the sports that they played. Now, they don't think of sport like we do. You know, we have football and basketball, baseball, and, you know, the Olympics are coming up. That's, that's not what they had in mind. For them, sport was shedding blood. I mean, it was just a bloodlust of whether animals or humans, it didn't matter. They did the gladiatorial games in there. And in time, what they would use also as part of their sport was the persecution of Christians. They would have Christians go and fight animals or gladiators or whoever. It's estimated that over 3,000 Christians died in the Colosseum. You see, Rome had as its purpose, at least in part, when it came to Christianity, to destroy the faith, to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. It was sick and to eliminate Christianity, and it tried for over 200 years, but it couldn't do it. It couldn't do it. I mean, it made all the efforts, but eventually Christianity, without ever raising a sword, ever shooting an arrow, without any battles, Christianity won out so that in the early 4th century, it became the faith of Rome. How did that happen? What went on to do that? In fact, in the 1800s, I mean, the 1700s in the 18th century, Pope Benedict XIV went to the Colosseum. And he went to the place where Caesar, the emperor, would, would sit and preside over the death of all those Christians. And he placed a cross there. So that a cross is at the entrance to that place of persecution and suffering. How did that come about? It's because the Christians preached the cross. That's what they did. That was it. They just went preaching the cross, preaching Jesus. Peter, as I read a couple of weeks ago, preached, you crucified him. Crucified, killed him on the cross. God raised him from the dead. Paul said, we preach Jesus Christ crucified. When you come to the end of Matthew, Matthew tells us of one more of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. There'll be a couple left. But he tells us of the one in Galilee and, and that Jesus had told his uh, disciples, his apostles, meet me there. And so it says the 11 met him there. Now other disciples and other followers came as well. In fact, uh, we tend to believe that it is that Galilee, when Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 writes that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time, it's probably there at Galilee. And uh, as, as they come, they, they kind of gather around him and he makes these appearances. Now Jesus doesn't travel anymore with them. He doesn't just travel around. He just shows up. You know? He walks through a wall, whatever. He's just there. And Jesus is just there. And it says, you know, those 11 guys worshiped him. Now it says some were doubtful. That doesn't mean that they doubted that Jesus was deserving of worship. But what it really means is that especially for some of the masses who probably had not yet uh, seen Jesus and seen the resurrected, it's a startling thing to occur. And so they were doubtful means they hesitated. They were uncertain. Some seeing him for the first time were uncertain, but they all ended up worshiping him. See, worship is the normal thing we do. In the presence of Christ. Worship is the way that we, in our DNA, express our need for deity. We understand that. That's why people create gods and goddesses to worship. Even atheists worship something. They really they worship themselves. We all worship something. And so they worshiped. And then Jesus said this. He said, guys, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's, that's an important thing to realize that he's talked about authority. Because the Jewish leaders had constantly questioned the authority of Jesus. What authority do you have to do the things you do? Why can you heal on the Sabbath? Why can you do these things that you talk about? What, what authority do you have? See, to the Jewish leaders, authority mattered. Now, in the Old Testament, the authority we know is from God. But in the time you get to Jesus, they had created a system where authority also was from the tradition of the elders. And so they had the authority Jesus did. Now, Jesus has always had authority. But when he became human, God in the flesh, he laid down the rights and privileges of his authority. But now he says, all authority is given to me. And the word authority, is kind of, sometimes your Bible may have power in this particular case. 
It's the word akousia, which means authority or power that is by right or freedom. There's another word in Acts 1.8 when he says, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The, the, the writer, he spoke in Hebrew, and they translated it into Greek. At that point, Luke says that word he used, dunamis, means raw ability. The raw ability, the raw power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But I have a power, I have an authority that is mine by right. And it's mine, all heaven and earth is mine. And he uses the word given to simply share that it's his again. He's always had it, but now he's going to exercise this. And then he gives verses 19 and 20, which we know is the Great Commission. Go make disciples. And what, what happens here, and what he does, is he speaks in Hebrew and Matthew writes in the Greek language. Now, I know you don't care about Greek and grammar, and I get this, because I promise you I don't care about grammar at all. If you've ever seen anything that I've written, you get that. But it's important you understand that what he does is that Greek's a very verbal language. So Matthew's going to give an imperative command, three participles in, and an infinitive. What that means is the participles in Greek, I don't know what to do in English. I know in Greek, participles modify usually the verb. Now, I, you know, sometimes I'll say something in Greek, and I've had an English teacher come up and say, well, that's really not what that does. That's really not the grammar of that. And I said, well, maybe not in English, but it is in Greek. And I said, unless you had New Testament Greek and you made better than a C plus, just back off, okay? Because <laughs> unless you can top that, right here, we're, just, we're going with what I got. And so, but what happens with the participles, as it modifies the, the command, which is to make disciples, it all carries the force of a command. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to realize this is a one mega gigantic commandment of Jesus. I mean, w- the way it's written, this is just this huge imperative demand that he has, this challenge is called upon our life. And he says, make disciples of all nations. Now, last week, I told you what the word disciple meant, so I'm not going to go into the great detail, but a disciple is one who's more than just learned things. A disciple is one who is bent towards Christ or whoever. You learn from a master and you accept what the master teaches and you bend that way and then you teach others to go that way. So in Greek life, for instance, Socrates had a disciple named Plato. And then Plato had a disciple named Aristotle. And they all kind of learned from their master and bent that way and they added to it. But you begin to teach and you begin to expound. You begin to extrapolate it out. Now, we are disciples, and Jesus said to be a disciple is to be a follower, to come after him. We bend our life towards Jesus. He said, I want you to go make more disciples, not just teach people stuff, not just learners, but disciples. And I want you to do it of all the nations. Now, I'll be honest, we've been good about going to different nations. As Americans, in the last 200 years, we've been good about going to different countries and helping people come to Jesus and sharing the gospel. We take the word nation to mean country. That's, that's who we are in English. But reality, the word nation is a word that speaks of ethnic. It's, it's a people group. Back in that day, they didn't think of countries. They had empires and kingdoms and the like. So, you know, they had the Roman Empire. The Persian Empire was next to the Roman Empire. There was other empires. There would be kingdoms. They might divide kingdoms up into provinces and areas for administrative purposes. Even among the Jews, there was Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. But they were one people. They just broke it up for the purpose of administration. And so, we think of countries, but really back then when they thought of nations, they thought of people groups. So we make cultures, an ethnic group, a culture group has a language, has history. They have things that are common and they share together. And we actually live in, in a country that has many different cultures. You are part of multiple cultures and subcultures. And you're to go into those cultures to make disciples. Think for a moment, many of you are in law enforcement. It doesn't matter if you're federal or, or state or, or, or local. That, that's a culture. You, you kind of have your own language, right? And you have things that you know about. And, you, and, you, and you're trained a certain way. You're all kind of trained together. And you have badges. And, and, and you carry weapons. And you're trained to do certain things. And, and you think a certain way. You have a culture that only you can reach. And, and there are a lot of people who 
kind of want to be in law enforcement, couldn't, so they kind of try to pretend that they're a part of your culture, right? They pretend they enter your world, and you're always kind of like, hey, back off. You, you, you kind of resent that. You know, you're not a part of who we are. You're not one of us. You're a culture. Accountants have a culture. You, you speak a language. You have certain things that you do, certain ways you think. Now, for accountants, it's different than law enforcement because nobody ever pretends to want to be an accountant. <laughs> There's nobody volunteering in there. I'm a volunteer accountant in my county, you know. There's not a bunch of people wearing plastic posture protectors right there, you know, and speaking about depreciating table. And this doesn't happen. But you are a culture of some sort. And there's all types of different cultures that you have. You know, you got a lot of college kids. Y'all are, y'all are your own culture. Man, I wouldn't want to be a part of that culture anymore. I'm so glad I finished college. You know, seven years were tough, but I made it out. And, Man, that's a different culture. And I can't, and you know, for me, this guy is hard to need to enter in those cultures. But you do. Christ calls you to go into that culture. And when you go into that culture, what is your task? Your task is to help them become disciples. Your task is to enter that world that you're already a part of and bend them to Jesus. Because you can. I can't. And he says, you're going to make disciples, and you're going to do it going, baptizing, and teaching. You're going to go. And, and, and this doesn't mean you go to a particular place. It really means going through life. As you go, you make disciples. In other words, <clears throat> you're, you're just living life, making disciples wherever you go. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, people from all over uh, the Roman Empire who were Jewish came, and they were there at Passover, and they heard the gospel, and they were converted, and then they went back to where they came from, and what did they do? They were going back into their culture and sharing the gospel. Did you ever wonder when Paul wrote the book of Romans? How was there already a church at Rome? He hadn't started it. Peter hadn't been there yet, because those from Acts, chapter 2 at Pentecost, they went back and started a really strong church, and other people had gone, you go through life. You're going making disciples. And when you go, you're going to baptize them. Now, you don't baptize them to save them or wash away sin, but back then, baptism was the mark of faith. And and for most of Christian history, the public declaration, the public proclamation of I am a Christian is baptism. That's that's why we baptize. We baptize someone. We have our baptism. We're going to have one in uh, the last Sunday of uh, uh, March. (laughs) Last Sunday of May. We may have one in March too, but that's 22. But we're going to have baptism. And that's that's a public act of, of salvation. And that's why, you know, some churches required to go through classes to be baptized. We don't do that because it's not biblical. Because that's the public proclamation. We don't, we don't want you to go through class. We want you to be baptized classless, as many people are. You know, just go in there and come back out. That's the public declaration of salvation. And then and we teach as you go. You're teaching. And you're teaching to observe or to follow, to obey. What are you teaching? You're teaching the things you're supposed to teach. And so they'll know. And so you, you teach to, to obey what I've commanded you. What did Jesus command? Well, you know, we, we know like last week, he said, deny, take up your cross and follow. He commanded that. We teach that. The week of the passion, he, people said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love one another, love God, love one another, do that. Right before his betrayal, he said, a new commandment, command, I give you. Love one another. We teach that. We teach, go make the stop. We teach this stuff. You go back in Matthew, who has the Great Commission. Go back, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have, you have the Sermon on the Mount. He, Jesus gave us all sorts of stuff. You go teach that. You teach so that people can follow and learn, so they can become teachers also of other people coming to Christ. When you come to First Baptist Church, uh, we want you, you know, obviously to be disciples. So we have a way, a process of doing things. We want you to come and worship. 
Worship is critical. I mean, worship is part of our DNA. Come and worship. Uh, the average church member, goer, I should say, uh, attends worship maybe twice a month. And maybe some say it's even less than that. Out of 52 Sundays, that means sometime around 21, 22 times a year, they, they come to worship. And you need to worship. You need to come more than that. You need to come. We, we want you to be serving. We have worship and now we're serving. Our serve somewhere. The minute you drive onto our property, you find people serving in the parking lot, serving at the doors, serving all over, teaching right now. Adults are serving and some of our youth are serving, teaching our kids. We want you to serve because if you serve here, it's easier to serve out there. It's hard to serve out there in the name of Christ if you don't serve here. We want you to be involved in discipleship or what we call community. So we have these things called connect groups and we want you to be part of connect group and learn. Our connect group we learn together. We disciple together. We go through life together. That's what we do. And if you will do that, and every adult, every Christian adult needs to be involved in worship, service, and discipleship or community, then if you'll do that, you'll go share the gospel. It's what we believe. It's what we know. And Jesus said, here's the thing, guys. You go make disciples, and I'll be with you all the way to the time ends, to the end of the ages, to the end of time, until, until I come back. I'm with you. Remember last week, and we follow Jesus. It's not we follow along in a straight line, but he comes alongside us. We come alongside him. He's saying, guys, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you the whole time. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be difficulty. But Jesus is going to be with you every step of the way. He says, guys, I'm with you. And then right before his ascension, he's, you know, he's going. How is he with us? And he says this, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And when Jesus leaves us, how can he be with us? Well, he's with us with the Holy Spirit. That's how. The Holy Spirit of God is with us every step of the way. And they went out, that church did, and shared the gospel, and people came to Jesus. Because here's the thing, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the promise of Jesus being with them, the disciples of Jesus shared Jesus everywhere they went. They shared the cross. And that was all they really did, to be honest. That was their strategy. That was their mission. That was their method. Go share the cross. I remember uh, about a year or so ago, we had a guest here. <laughs> he was, he was a, you could tell he was an old retired pastor. You can tell old retired pastors, man. And I pray, I say, oh, Lord, baby, Debbie, please, please, tell me when I look like an old pastor. I don't want to be an old pastor. Tell me. Because when that guy comes, I'm telling you this, I'm going to go buy me some of them skinny jeans with rips in them. <laughs> and I'm going to frost my hair singular, you know, so you know. I don't, I don't want to look like one of those old guys, man. That's kind of, you, know, you know, I started in ministry when I was 19 years of age, and these past 20 years have flown by, but I will tell you, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of like that uh, George Strait song. I was a young troubadour who wrote in on a song, and I'll be an old troubadour when I'm gone. So I don't want to be too old, though, when it's time to go. So a pastor said, preacher, because you know they're old, they call you preacher. What's your evangelism strategy? And I knew what he was getting after. What's your evangelism strategy? And, uh, and I understood that. Listen, there's a lot of great evangelism strategies. And we have a, a, my other office, we have two office locations, one here, and then we have a hidden office that we don't want people to know about, but it's close to Rudy's. So when I transition from one to the other, I have a place to stop. And in that, in that office, I have all these notebooks, these thick notebooks of, of all these different evangelism techniques and strategies. And I get that, and, and they're good. But basically, I just said, you know, long ago, I cast those aside. I said, here's what we do. We encourage people to worship. We wanted to get them serving, and we get them involved in community. That's our strategy. He goes, but but what's your strategy? I'm like, well, that was Jesus' strategy. So I'm going to go with that. We're good. But that's our strategy. 
Now, that was their strategy. Because here's what. If you will get involved in worship service and discipleship, here's what I know. A community. You will go eventually and make disciples. You'll go to your ethnic group. You'll go to your nation. And you will start bending people back towards Jesus. You know, I'll tell you what these guys did. Their mission wasn't to feed the poor. And their mission wasn't to fight poverty. And their mission wasn't to end slavery, which basically almost half the people at one point in the Roman Empire were slaves. Don't get me wrong. They fed poor people all the time. They fed the hungry. They healed people. They would take the poor and bring them into their homes and the widows and orphans and take care of them. When the Romans would leave their infants on the side of the road to die to the elements because they didn't want them, normally girls, or if they had a defect, the Christians knew where those spots were and they'd go every day to check the spots. And when they found the baby there, they'd take the baby and bring them into their home to raise them as their own. They cared about all people. They treated women and slaves as they were equal to everyone else. When you came into the church, you were equal. There was no difference between Jew or Gentile, slave or free man. There was no difference between man or woman. And the people flocked to Christ. But that wasn't their priority. Their priority was always the cross. And the poor came to the cross. And women came. And slaves came. And Gentiles came by the thousands. Because when they heard the message of the cross, they could be free. And they faced persecution and excommunication. And they faced their families disowning them. And children would face getting kicked out on their own. And you faced possibly death. Why would you face that? Because of the cross. Because there was something about that message of the cross of Christ. They could be free. They could be free from sin. They could be free from death. They could be free for eternity. You see, the cross is more than just a symbol of Christianity. It is the reminder that Jesus paid the price to free us from sin. Separation from God. He paid the price to do something that can't be done any other way. And the cross is that message. That is why we take the cross more than anything else is our passion. We take the cross to people. We share Jesus. We share the gospel. However you're going to word it, it's the same thing. We take that cross and to the nations where you live to bend people to come to Jesus. And even though Rome did everything in its limited power to wipe out Christianity, it still grew, it still spread. And people still came and they still come today to the cross. 340 million people in the world live as persecuted Christians. And that number keeps growing in places where Christianity is a death sentence. Why? Because of the cross. The power of the cross. Here's the thing. The only post-resurrection commandment Jesus gave was to make disciples. That's it. 
This guy says, here's what I want you to do. Before, before his death, he has some commands. And I got that. And before his death, he said, I want you to love one another. I got that. And then after it was all over, he just gathered those 11. And the others were around, but he said to these 11, here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to listen. Take notes. You know, some of them can write this down. Matthew ended up writing it down. He said, take notes. Make disciples. You got that? Everybody got that note? Just make, make that down. If he'd have had slides, that'd have been the slide. Put music to the background and a video to go with it. Make disciples. That's what he did. That's what he told. And you make disciples by taking people the cross. See, for the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. You cannot separate the cross from Christianity. You can't take it from our faith. To try to create a church where you don't emphasize the cross is doomed for failure. To try to say, well, you know, I want to follow Jesus. You you can learn about Jesus, but we're going to take the cross out of it. We're going to take the resurrection out of it. We're going to take the death out. You're going to take all that out, but there is no Christianity. There's just something a bunch of people made up. But to take the heart of our faith to anyone to take to them the cross of Christ. See, the centrality of the cross, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, is that the message of the cross has the power to save us. Power of God. The reason for the cross in Romans 4.25 is that Christ was given over on account of our transgressions, our sins, but raised to life so that we could be declared right by God. The heart of the cross, Romans 5, 8, was that God showed how much his depth of love for us was because we were still sinning when Jesus died for us. The achievement of the cross, Romans 5, 10, says that while we were the enemy of God, the enemy of God, the enemy of God, Jesus died to reconcile us. And the message of the cross in John 20, when Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God, John says, we wrote this so you could believe that he's the Christ and believing you could have life in his name. And with the preaching of the cross in Acts 2, Peter said, you crucified him. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And last week with the life of the cross, Jesus said, if you want to be mine, you deny yourself. You take up your cross, but you come, follow me. The cross of Christ and your life should be inseparable. It should be inseparable. But is it? I mean, is there really any connection to your life and to the cross? We sinned against God and rebelled against him, every one of us. And we deserve all that comes with it, which is the separation of an eternity from God. But because he loves us so much, he sent Jesus into this world He died for us in our place and on our behalf. He died, but God raised him back to life so that we could have faith and be saved. 
and know this. Where sin once sat and ruled your life, there should now be a cross. Is there a cross that rules your life? If there's not, then you can trust Jesus right now and give your life to him. There's no special prayer you got to There's no sinner's prayer. There's no special verse. There's no formula that you have to go through. You simply say, I have sinned against you, and I'm repenting and turning from my sin, and Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Save me. And he'll save you. In just a moment, I'm going to be here. A couple of guys will be here. There may be for you gals. There may be a lady up here as well. If you want to talk to them, and if you want to say, I want to give my life to Christ, just come. Or if you're saying, you know, I just did that. David, I just gave my life to Jesus. Then come. If you're on the internet and you're watching or however, give your life to Christ. If you want to come and talk to somebody this week, you can call us or email us. But you need to give your life to Jesus. And if you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you this. Who's going to go into your nation if you don't? Because I'm not going there. You got to go. Because Christ told you to go. Take the cross to your nation. Make disciples. If you want to come and pray with us, we'll pray with you about that. If you want to come and join our church, you can join our church. Listen, I don't know what you need to do. Here's what I know. Before you leave this place today, be sure. Be sure. You are a disciple of Jesus. That you have the cross of Christ. Lord, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you for what you have done. We did not and do not deserve what you provide, but your unbelievable love and grace and your holiness, you have given us salvation. And it's not complicated, it's not hard, it's not difficult. You just sent Jesus to a cross. And at that cross, there's this power not in the cross, but in the Christ of the cross. And so we come to the power of Christ, the power that you have, that that cross reminds us of for salvation. And we ask that you, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would turn us, you bend us towards Jesus. And in bending us towards you, Father, we would go as a disciple and make more disciples. We would share the good news. And we would do this in the name of the one who went to the cross, to the cross of Christ. Amen. Would you stand? We'll greet you if you come, but you come.